Well, good morning. It is good to be back. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, turn them on, whatever you need to do, to Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. The message this morning is entitled, Do Not Be Naive. And I hope that's not offensive to you. We'll talk about that in just a second. But as soon as you get to Romans 16, we will read through this. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. And I'll give you a warning right up front. This morning's message may be tough for you to hear. I may step on your toes. It is not my intention, but at the same time, I just want to faithfully preach and teach God's Word. And so if you have questions about this morning's sermon, please feel free to talk to me, email me, text me. We'll set up a time and we'll go over this in detail. But uh, it's a tough one. This is at the very end of the book of Romans. We've spent months going through this verse by verse. And in between the section of greeting and responding and greeting, the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, writes the text that we're about to read, and it covers some housekeeping, some internal stuff within the church. So let's begin reading verse 17 through 20. He says, I appeal or urge Um, I appeal to you, this is very important, brothers, he's talking to believers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. So we're dealing with internal issues within Christianity, within the church, people coming in and teaching stuff that is contrary to the doctrine that they had received, the word of God. And he says the solution here is avoid them. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly love dealing with confrontation. It's not on the top of my list of things to do. It's probably right there after canyoneering and rappelling down 100-foot cliffs. But no, if you were here a few weeks ago, you understand that. No, uh, confrontation can be tough. But he goes on in verse 18, he says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites or desires, and by smooth talk, or fine speech and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. These are likable people. You would describe these individuals as nice guys. And they're doing something out of their heart, their own desires. It doesn't sound evil, and it probably would even appeal to you. But they are using certain techniques to try to convince you of doing certain things, and they deceive the hearts. This isn't a, a thoughtful process. They're appealing to emotion and they're deceiving those who are naive. For your obedience, though, is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So at the end, he's describing this process, this teaching that they're doing is actually evil. He goes so far in verse 20, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, referring most likely back to the garden and the judgment that God gives on Satan in the Garden of Eden, this early judgment. And he's saying that if they obey, if they do what is right and true, God will give them victory even over Satan and his schemes. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's his grace that sustains them in this. It's not a fun process. So let's begin. The title of this morning that I've tried to encompass all this is don't be naive. Just simply don't do that. And that's offensive because a lot of people don't understand what the word naive means. So let's go to the gold standard dictionary. And by the way, in the Greek, 
Uh, this word occurs twice. It, it, it occurs here. And in Hebrews, in reference to our Lord Jesus and his innocence of sin. So it's not a very common word in the Greek, but I believe the, the English word captures it well. The problem is most people really don't have a firm grasp on the English word. So the Cambridge Dictionary of the English language says this in regarding a definition of naive. Someone who is too ready to believe someone or something or to trust that someone's intentions are good, especially because of a lack of ex experience. So you're too ready to believe someone's intentions are good especially because of a lack of experience. Now, the not-so-much gold standard of dictionaries, the Urban Dictionary, <laughs> they actually do a pretty good job here to give you a little more insight and to think through this. It says, generally speaking, to be naive means you don't think enough. People who are naive tend to believe in whatever they're told without questioning whether it's right or wrong. So you're not sinful, you're not stupid, you're just wanting to believe the best and you don't always process things like you should according to wisdom or in our case, according to truth. Don't be naive and you think, well, that's not me. Well, let's give a real world example here. How many of you know what Craigslist is? Yeah, it's like online classifieds. I've talked to some of you the very first time you jump on Craigslist and you're looking for a vehicle and you're like, Brand new F-150 Ford truck, four-wheel drive, 5,000 miles, only $15,000. I'm calling them. And I'm like, that's a scam. And they're like, it's not like they're giving away for five bucks. It's $15,000. I know it's, it's designed to be a little more believable. But who gets a new truck when their list price is $50,000 for $15,000 with 5,000 miles? But it could be true, Scott. really could. And we're talking about people with degrees and all sorts of intelligence and experience in a lot of areas, and they're falling for scams. It happens. They're just simply new to the process, and they don't realize there's lots of scams involved. Well, that is also true of just about every organization that you're a part of, and believe it or not, even in the New Testament, back when the church first got started, it was true within the church, and it's true within Christianity today. And I'm going to give you some specifics that may surprise you. But don't be naive. So once again, if I upset you, if you disagree, the solution is check what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? All right, so let's go verse by verse a little slower. Verse 17, he says, I appeal to you, I urge or beseech you on some of the older translations. This is important. This is a top priority. Brothers, these people are saved. They're not unsaved. They're not ignorant. They know Jesus Christ. Brothers, to watch out for, keep an eye on those who cause divisions and create obstacles. So they are going to be within the church. They're going to be coming in, maybe guest speakers, guest teachers. Back in the day, the gift of prophecy was still active. Maybe prophets coming in. Whatever the case, he says, keep an eye out for these people. Now that's tough because many of you come to church wanting to just simply to be encouraged, to, to be lifted up, to know God, to hear his word. And of all places, having to come in and, and, and deal with stuff like that, you typically don't want to, so this is not on your radar. But he says, keep an eye out. Don't be naive. Even when you're in, in a house where they, they preach the gospel, 
You have to be aware. You have to be wise. Don't be naive. He says, keep an eye out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Well, what is he talking about? Divisions and obstacles. Well, he could be referencing like the circumcision group that Romans was talking about. Paul earlier in his letter was talking about those who were following the uh, Old Testament laws and bringing them into the new covenant. He could be speaking of that, but I believe he's specifically kind of generic and broad. He's leaving it open because throughout the ages, throughout the history of the church, there have been a number of different kinds of divisions and obstacles people have set up. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And he says, they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So the standard in which you're trying to figure things out is the word of God. They had the Old Testament, more than likely the Gospels, and, and some of the letters at this point in time. The, the Word of God, the Bible that you have, has not, was not yet complete. But what they had, they were to measure against that. The doctrine that they'd been taught. You check it out against that. No matter how good it sounds, no matter what they're preaching, you, you check it out against that. And if they're doing this, the solution is this, and this is really hard. Avoid them. Avoid them. Isn't, well, we're going to filter what some of the, the things they have to say, and like, I'm going to agree to disagree on this, this piece of doctrine, or I'm just, you know, that's for them. No, you're, you're to have no part in their ministry. You're, you're to have no part in their support. You are to avoid them. And that's really hard because some of us come from churches or backgrounds where our families are part of some teaching that is flat out wrong and untrue. And, and you're like, well, I'm visiting them. Should I go to their church? You know, all sorts of things. And he says, no, avoid them. And, and that's, that's a difficulty that we all face with family and friends and different things and decisions we have to make. So what are some examples of divisions and obstacles? The slide I have is representative of kind of a high church as well as what we call a low church or a charismatic position. Uh, this is a free-for-all. Everyone's been guilty of it. Let me give you some examples specifically. Let's start with us in Southern Baptist history. One of the things that we used to do, have you ever been to a church where the preacher was just on fire and he was saying, amen, hallelujah, brother. I, we're, the Holy Spirit is moving here today. There's some of you that are in bondage to sin. We are going to set you free today. And they were on fire, man. They were calling out people for sin. Hey, you're committing adultery back there. Come up here and pray. They were on fire wild. Some amens and hallelujahs, right? Well, they would always claim that the Holy Spirit was leading them to do certain things and, and that the Holy Spirit was leading them to know certain things about individuals in the church. And they actually would get a lot of response and people would get saved through those ministries, but they were a victim of their own success. And I saw this firsthand because what was amazing is you would have to go to second and third services, right? And so the claims of those first sermons and those first services where the Holy Spirit was telling them and leading them and doing certain things. Well, in the second service, you were like, huh, I wonder how good the Holy Spirit's going to move on this time. And it was the exact same message as the first service. You're like, wow, it was kind of strange. The Holy Spirit would lead you to say that someone is in this service with the exact same sin at the exact same time in your message. You're like, maybe that's just a coincidence. Well, the third service, it was like me and a buddy were back there and we were hanging... Uh, ushering or handing out bulletins and we're like I bet you this isn't the Holy Spirit I bet you this is just this guy's style of preaching 
And he's attributing it to the Holy Spirit. And so we set our watches. We're like, the Holy Spirit's going to come on him right now. And sure it was. The Holy Spirit would move on him right then. Not only that, but it was always the Holy Spirit would, would tell the preacher to keep preaching. And you'd go like 20 and 30 minutes past the time you're supposed to get out. And the Methodists would beat you to lunch, you know. Well, all that changed when you had the second and third services. Because you couldn't go long because the, the Sunday school teachers would string you up, right? Because they're stuck down there with the kids and they're like, where are the parents? They get down here now. So you couldn't go long. Now, I'm not saying, and by the way, this is, this is of all the examples I give today, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit never moved on those guys. I'm sure that powerful preaching, the Spirit of, of God is within them, and, and, and maybe some of them were, and, and I believe that it was, but some of them were directly attributing their techniques to the, the work of God. And if you understood that, and if you learned that that wasn't true, do you think that created an obstacle within my faith and the faith of those around us who were serving and saw this every day? That we wanted to believe this, but we were seeing it was actually manufactured by a man. There's nothing wrong with good preaching and powerful preaching. But when you attribute your tactics to God, it causes doubt and destruction in people's faith. Well, that's a Baptist example. In high church, wow, there's all sorts of examples. The, the claim that you have to go to their church and receive the sacraments in order to be saved, do you think that is an obstacle to salvation? Just simply by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ? Yeah. There's all sorts of different things. Not being able to confess your sin directly to God, but having to go through a man? Or to the services that are entirely made up? Yeah, here's the, here's the key as you're trying to figure out divisions and obstacles. You can only do this through three ways, right? You either remove something from God's word that is truth. You add to God's word some sort of extra prophecy or you twist God's word. You make it say something, or try to make it say something that it really doesn't, and you squeeze something else in there. This is the third example. My charismatic friends, there, there are some good people who are charismatic, but the gift of healing, or the gift of fallible prophecy, which is so popular today, they believe the gift of prophecy is still active, and they just say stuff, and they leave it up to you, to discern whether or not it's actually true, trying to pick out what is true and what is not. In Matthew 17, or Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, 19 through 20, describing what this is in Matthew chapter 7. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. In the Bible, you either have true prophets or you have false prophets. And you recognize them by their fruits, not trying to discern what error is and what error isn't. Even the gift of healing, that sounds pretty innocuous, right? How many in, in here have had the flu or know someone that had the flu and had to go see a doctor this past year? Either you had the flu or know someone who had the flu. All right. When you got out or they got out and you got to the doctor's office and you're checking out there at the, the, maybe the secretary and, and you're giving payment, did, did you hear them say to you, hey, I understand that there's nothing we can really do for you here, but here's a list of people in our community that have the gift of healing. 
You just go see them and you're all better. Did they give you that list? No. Now, that doesn't seem really bad, does it? I mean, it's just the flu. Well, we have individuals and have had individuals in our church where their children have very serious medical problems. So much so that they spend time over in Dornbecker's Children's Hospital and other children's hospitals. If the gift of healing, not, and, and let's be very clear, a lot of times people twist this. If you deny the gift of healing exists today and is active, people will slander your faith and say, well, you don't believe God can heal. And we'll talk about that in a minute. No, we do believe God can heal, and I can give you examples of it, God answering prayer. But that is not the gift of healing described in the Bible where individuals consistently can walk up to someone and lay their hands on them and heal them, whatever their disease is. That's what we're talking about. And if that exists, and we have a children's hospital, some of which have come here, full of kids who are sick, hurting, suffering, and dying of the most vicious and horrible diseases this world has ever known, and the guy that says he has the gift of healing doesn't clear that place out? How evil is that? You think that causes some obstacles in people's faith? when they hear that the gift of healing supposedly exists today, but it's just not for them and their child? Not that God can't heal, but this supposed gift. We're talking about a list of people, like I could give you a list of people with the gift of administration, the gift of mercy in our church, but the list of people who can literally heal. God, it was true and active at one time in the church, but it's not today. And people use and twist that in a variety of ways, and we'll go further in. But he says this, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. Not just say, hmm, well, that's good for them, but avoid them. Verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For such persons do not serve the Lord, but their own appetites. Here's what's happened. Here's the problem that I've seen. Good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches have run off people because they become stale and stagnant and dead. The Pharisees and the Sadducees knew the Bible. They taught the Bible, but they didn't live the Bible. And so when people start out at a good, solid, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, but it seems dead, it's two parts. Is that church challenging you to actually live out the Word of God, and are you willing to live it out individually? Or do you just want something more? And that's where I've discovered people begin looking for something more, either in high church, some sort of ceremonial, some sort of position or rank, some sort of, of thing that they can do that creates an inner feeling that they can find some sort of peace or hope in. It's easy. It's something that you can do at a place and a time, and it generates a feeling. It feeds the appetite for something more in a very majestic and very sovereign and very quiet way. And then on the opposite end, all this sort of chaos and the charismatic movement, they're, they're wanting the, the feeling of the power of the Spirit and all sorts of stuff, and it feels good at first, but the content 
Is it actually true? Does it ultimately lead to peace or just this unending search supposedly for God telling them certain things that they can't ever hold to? And again, just as all Baptists didn't do what I was describing, not all people in charismatic churches do what I'm describing here as well. But it is their own appetite. So you have to look inward at your life. Are you actually living what God has taught before you toss it aside and look for something additional? And he says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Preachers are good, usually, at speaking, but not all preachers need to be that way. The Apostle Paul is accused of being unimpressive in person by the very churches he planted and taught. Unimpressive. Moses was unimpressive. Do you recall any of the gospel accounts where Jesus has this wild, crazy service and teaching and preaching? Or is he just sitting in a synagogue or is he sitting on a, on a hillside and he's simply telling stories? the greatest preacher of all time. In the American history, the greatest revival that ever occurred was called the Great Awakening at the founding of our nation. And it started, God was moving in a mighty way, and it started with a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He was perhaps by definition one of the worst preachers ever. His wife literally had to dress him, and when he would preach, he would stand in front of his podium with his little spectacles. He would read his text that he read slowly, carefully, no voice inflection for hours, and he would never look up. Yet, a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God just sparked a revival in New England, and, and just, it just flooded throughout the entire nation early as our nation was being founded, and it changed the course and the history of our nation in a lot of ways. God used amazing individuals that had no talent whatsoever. So what about smooth talk and flattery? I could give you a lot of examples, but let me give you one that's very specific. It's in regards to healing again. He stood up here and he says, do you believe God can heal? And everyone was like, kind of nodding like you're doing right now. And he said it again, do you believe God can heal? And everyone's like, did I miss something? I'm, we're, we're getting fired up here. Amen. Do you believe God can heal? And it was like, yeah, God can heal. Is that an actual question? No, it's not. It's a speaking technique. Let me bring it back to normal life. We're growing here and we're running out of office space, so all of our desks are in our office. And across the way in, in the room that I sit at at my desk, we have Trista, our administrative assistant. Imagine if I said to Trista one morning, Trista, do you think that you can give me the business financials this week? Trista would be like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, I can do that. A few seconds go by, Trista, do you think you can give me the financials today? She'd be like, yeah, I just said that. I'm doing it right now. A few moments go by. Trista, do you think you can give me the financials today? She'd be like, yeah, Scott. 911. <laughs> I've got a problem here at the church. My pastor's lost it. Come get him. That's not a question, it's a tactic that people use to twist the truth 
and to manipulate you. And notice the question, this is common. Do you believe God can? Do you believe God can do anything? Do you believe God can heal? Notice the subtlety here. It's moving from what God's word says and reveals about what God is and who he is and what he does to you being the standard of truth. Do you believe God can do anything? Well, no, actually God can't do anything. He can't sin. That's just one example. But God does do and does actively do a number of things. But you see how subtle that is. It's designed to appeal to your emotions. And it's a subtle shift from what God's word actually says to placing you into a new state of mind. And it's all about emotion. And the healing, once again, it's, it's been reduced. It's no longer biblical where anyone gets healed, but it's always someone with a headache, someone with an achy back, someone with a little head cold. I mean, we have people in here who are blind, who have Parkinson's disease, who have MS, who have had major surgeries in need of healing. It's never those people that get healed, unless it's literally by the hand of God miraculously. But it's designed also to put authority in the, the speaker's position because they'll, they'll always say, well, God's telling me someone in here has a headache or this or that. And it's designed to, to, to move you to an understanding that they have greater faith and that's the kind of faith that you need to have. And if you have that kind of faith, God will talk to you. By the way, God doesn't talk to people today. You always hear people like, I feel God talking to me. No, you don't feel speech, you hear speech. If you want to test this out, go out in the parking lot, I'll continue talking, and you come back in here, and you can tell me what you feel I said. <laughs> that doesn't work. Now, God does move in our lives. He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and, and, and judgment. He fills us with the Holy Spirit of joy, peace, power, comfort, uh, His love. The Holy Spirit is active and alive in your life if you're a born-again believer but he's not talking audibly. If he is, let's check it out. Go to YouTube. Everyone has a cell phone, right? Google God speaking and find out. Everyone, I mean, if God's talking on a regular basis, someone pulled out their phone, right? Record it, post it to Facebook, right? It's not there. We have subtly taken certain words saying God has spoken to me rather than God has convicted me, and it raises it to a level or a standard of truth that is now unquestioned because God said it. If it was a conviction, then you would filter it through God's word. But God's speaking is unquestioned. It's very subtle tactics, smooth talk and flattery. The flattery piece is where they build you up of encouraging you. Well, you didn't believe God could do anything, but now you do. You're doing well and everyone else is silly. It's a building up. And these are nice Guys, right? Someone that is a smooth talker, someone that can present well, someone that is flattering you. These are nice guys. And that's what people will say. Well, he's just so nice. I'm sure he's maybe a little off there, but I'm going to keep listening. I'm going to keep going. Now, avoid them. The standard is what is contrary to the doctrine of what you were taught. Verse 19, for your obedience 
Here, we're moving to the solution. For your obedience is known to all. If you want to live for God, take his word and obey it, and you will see this incredible, incredible power and change in your life that will become known to all. It is self-evident. It is not generated by some guy in a service somewhere or some special teaching or meeting. It is the living and active God taking his word, changing your life, your thinking, and people are like, wow, what's different about Bob? But it's hard. That's why people reject it. How much of Scripture do you actually know? And then what of that that you know and have memorized are you actually trying to change? What part of your life have you examined where you're saying, like, I stumble and, and I fall and, and I'm tripped up in this area of my life. I, I don't seem to have freedom there. Well, some people do that, but then what is the solution? Have you actually looked at what God's Word says about that? Do you have people helping you, disciple you in that area? Or you're like, no, I'll just see if I can try to, to feel better this way or that way. It's hard. But this obedience, when you do it, it's known to all. And it, here's where the emotion comes in. He says, so that I rejoice over you. You want a powerful, exciting, emotional life in Christ, full of joy and love? Obey him. Don't just come to the church and say, amen. Don't just come to the church and clap and say, great song. Obey him. And it's hard. But as you do it, it's incredible because you, you, you receive victory. He says, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You see, it, this is this incredible thing. As you actually take God's word and do it, you become more familiar with it and you become familiar with the power of the Holy Spirit and his word in your life. And then when people begin kind of twisting it with smooth talk and flattery, it's very evident in your life of like, no, not only is that doctrinally not true, I've experienced the truth. The two come together. Innocent as to what is evil. That's the hard part too. Not only avoiding these things, but truly calling it what it is. When you're twisting, adding to, or taking away God's word that, it, that is developing stumbling blocks and divisions within the body of Christ, that is evil. It is of Satan. That's hard to say, especially to a nice guy. It really is. But there's more on the line than just someone's feelings and, and offending a nice guy. Is the eternal destiny of you, your family, and your friends in the body of Christ. Verse 20, he says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, the grace of our Lord Christ Jesus be with you. The verse we believe that he's referring to, and by the way, the God of peace. When you obey, it's such a great place. It really is. Life becomes really simple. You're saying, God, you know, not my will, yours. And you're not just saying that like, oh, God direct me, open doors. You're not just saying it, but you're like, all right. I've been rebelling in this area of my life. I'm going to do it. No matter, no matter what it costs me, I'm going to do it. And in this area of my life, I'm going to do it. In this area of my life, I'm going to do it. And you're going to receive 
of peace that surpasses all understanding, and your prayers are amazing. It's no longer the, dear God, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Things are good here. How are you? <laughs> it's no longer like this letter form that we say our prayers with, but it's like, Lord, help me. Forgive me. Strengthen me. Give me grace, God. Your prayers come alive. And you're not just praying for just random stuff. You're praying for God's will that you are actively trying to live out. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. He will give you victory over false doctrine, false teachers inspired by Satan. The, the verse, the passage in Genesis that he's alluding to here is Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Again, this prophecy, early prophecy that most scholars believe of what Christ does on the cross, defeating death, hell, and Satan. And you shall bruise his hill. This idea that Satan will be active but defeated in this world until Christ comes again. But the amazing thing is this. All the, the stuff that I just said to you, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 6. You'll see a pattern here that is amazingly similar and why I believe that God inspires Paul to allude to this. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. For those of you not familiar with the Bible, it's the first book in the Bible. Real, real easy to find. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. Notice the similarities on what, what Satan does here. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, this is Satan indwelling a serpent's body. Will you not surely die? For God, or you will not surely die. So God had told Adam and Eve, if they eat of this tree in the garden, they will surely die. And he just flat contradicts it. He adds to God's word. He says, you will not surely die. And then he begins to appeal to a different God, a God not revealed in Scripture, but a God appealing to emotion. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to her eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. It was an appeal to desire. Any sort of lie that appeals to desire, you begin to, to believe. I love the Holman New Testament commentary series probably lays this out in, in five simple points clearer than any other commentary or scholar that I saw. Number one, Adam and Eve were taught the truth. The Roman believers are reminded of the teaching they have learned. Number two, Adam and Eve should have kept away from the one who came to tempt them. He should have. The Roman believers are warned to watch out and keep away from those who would lead them astray. Number three, the one who deceived Adam and Eve was not serving God, but himself. The Roman believers are warned that their tempters are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. Number four, Adam and Eve were deceived by smooth talk. The Roman believers are warned to beware of smooth talk and flattery. Number five, just as God pronounced the ultimate doom on the one who would deceive Adam and Eve, so Paul repeats that promise to the Roman believers, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The similarities are almost identical. So let's deal with some objections. 
This is tough stuff. I know there is. Objection number one. Scott, I've been a part of some of the churches that you've talked about and described as evil, and I've actually experienced good there. Not only that, but I got saved in those churches. You're wrong, Scott. Well, let me give you a clear example of what's going on here. You're confusing, this person with this objection is confusing God's providence and presence with his will. God's providence and presence with his will. And a lot of people do this in looking at their lives, trying to make certain decisions. They confuse God's providence and presence with his will. Let me give you an example. Let's say I leave here, take up a life of crime, start robbing banks. Rob 25 banks, the 25th bank, I get shot. I get thrown in prison. I'm in prison. I I return to the Lord. I turn back to the Lord. I start a prison ministry. I'm going to be in prison for the rest of my life. In prison, I start preaching. People are saved. It's this incredible, glorious thing. The question is this. Was it God's will that I robbed banks? No. Don't go rob banks, please. That's, That's an easy question to answer. But you see, as a believer, God promises me that he's never going to leave or forsake me. Jesus promises, I will be with you to the end of the age. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. When we are born again, his indwelling presence is with us. So no matter what we do, no matter how sinful a behavior we fall into, God's presence is always there. And as you look back in your life, you will be able to say, yeah, God was still there. I was in rebellion against him, uh, but I could still feel God's presence there. Not only this, but in Genesis, in Joseph speaking of his brothers um, that uh, basically threw him into slavery, uh, he says this, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that the many people should be kept alive as they are today. God can use what is intended for evil for good. He can use you in rebellion doing whatever it is you're doing. He can use it for good. It is not his will, but he can use it. He used evil kings in the Old Testament to bless Israel with riches so they could go and rebuild the temple and take back the land. He used all sorts of evil nations to judge Israel. He can use evil people. Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 7, verse 22 and 23 says this, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. God can and did use unbelieving people to do miracles, but it didn't mean they knew him. God can use whatever he wants to use for his good, but to determine whether or not it is his will, you go to his word. And you live it out through a transformed mind, Romans 12, 2, that you can test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing perfect will. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind with God's word. So, A lot of people, because they can feel God's presence and look back in their life and see him at work, and even the end result will say, oh, well, yeah, I I did what God wanted, and I was doing the right thing. No, it was not God's will that I would go rob banks. But God can use it for good. The same thing with churches who preach false doctrine. I know people in this church that got saved in the Mormon church. 
They came and preached the gospel to them out of the King James Bible and they got saved. But then they started adding on extra books and after a while they're like, eh, this isn't right. This isn't what was going on here and they leave. God can use all sorts of ministries for his glory, but it doesn't mean that it's right. Objection number two. Well, Scott, you can say this, but quite frankly, those churches are really growing and getting really big. And I see a lot of stuff going on there. And your church, well, it's just, it's not the same size. Very well. Is that, is that how we judge truth now? The size of a church? I believe Joel Olstein has a pretty good sized church. He's a nice guy, but he's preaching false doctrine. I believe there are a few billion Muslims in the world. I was on the Temple Mount when they let loose all the people out of the mosque on the Temple Mount there in, in Jerusalem and Israel. And it's a little disturbing seeing hundreds of Muslims coming out. And they don't come out full of peace. They're angry. They're arguing with one another. I'm sitting there like, I'll be over here. You can have large crowds of people where teachers are, are, are tickling the ears of the, uh, of the people attending who want to hear certain things. It doesn't make it true. What makes it true is, does it align with the very word of God? So those objections are real in a sense. They're very experiential. But you have to go back as, does this teaching align with God's word? Has it been twisted? Has someone added to it with extra prophecy? Or has someone taken away, denying the inerrancy of scripture? And they're like, oh, you can't trust this and you can't trust that. The amazing thing here is God says that those who obey will experience victory. The God of peace actively through your life and through the power of his Holy Spirit will crush those under your feet. The idea is he is still at work. Those who are faithful in following him, he is active and he will give you victory over false teaching and other teachers and divisions and obstacles. There is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of the one true God. Let's close. Father, I just thank you so very much. I know this is difficult for, for some of us to hear. It touches so many of us personally because we've been involved in churches that have twisted it. We've, we've tried to overlook it. Uh, we love those individuals, but are we willing to avoid them? Are we just trying to filter stuff out? It's so convicting, especially in a community like this, where we want to work together in the body of Christ with other churches who are faithfully teaching your word, but at the same time, trying to maintain that which is true. Father, I pray that all of us will not be naive, that we'll faithfully go to your word and everything that we do and everything that we experience and measure it. Is it actually true? In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.